Gospel of Luke, and we'll be in chapter 22. We're starting our Easter celebration series uh, this morning by journeying with our Savior uh, to the cross and then his final victory over death at the empty tomb. So this morning, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 22, primarily focusing on verses 14 through 23 uh, in the institution of the Lord's Supper. So the last meal that Christ has with his disciples in Luke 22. We've all heard the phrase, in remembrance of me. It's fairly common in the church, but also in our culture. Uh, From the back of windows of cars that are remembering loved ones who passed on, to engraving of a tombstone, to our national monuments, we read that phrase, in remembrance. And this call to remember is most often met with a certain sense of gravity and sobriety. For example, on every September 11th, our entire nation in some way remembers those who lost their lives or lost their loved ones as a result of the horrific terrorist attacks of the World Trade Center there in New York City. Many of us even wake up that morning and we see the calendar and the images of the television on the television screen flash before our eyes, the shocking sight of American Airlines flight 11, United Airlines Flight 175 crashing into the north and south west towers. The sights, the sounds, the emotions then just flood in of that day and that time, again, affects us all as we remember the nearly 3,000 lives that were ended that day and another 6,000 plus that were injured. We will never forget was a phrase that became very prominent and plastered all over the newspapers magazines and websites in the days that followed those attacks. And again, every September 11th, that phrase shows up. We will never forget, forget. And again, it's met with sobriety and sadness as a day we certainly will not forget. Well, here in this passage this morning, Luke is beginning his account of what we might call the Passion Week, the final hours of Christ's life, and he focuses the lens closer and closer on the Savior in these last hours. Over the course of these final chapters in Luke, in his account, he with great deal and care guides us along the final steps of the Messiah as he makes his way to a hill called Calvary. But before arriving to the cross, there are truths Christ's disciples must hear and observe. There are truths about this man, Jesus, that they must must be revealed and understood. And so our passage this morning holds out one of the essential truths for Christ's disciples. For what is about to take place in just a few short hours will change the course of history, and therefore it's it's an event that we must never forget. You see here, in these verses, Christ teaches us that grace we receive in Him ought to be continually remembered and celebrated. Yes, there is some sobriety, some gravity to this moment, but as we'll celebrate on Easter Sunday morning, there is also joy and victory. Here in the Last Supper, Jesus institutes this continual remembrance of his future grace, his present grace, and past grace. His future grace in the victory at the consummation of his kingdom, the present grace in our union with him and his body, and the past grace in his death and blood shed for us. And so we'll actually begin reading this morning in verse 1 of chapter 22. So please follow along as I read. 
Now the feast of the unloved bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of the unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house where he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is filled, fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as, as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. This is God's word for us, so let's thank him before we study it this morning. Father, we are grateful for your word and that you show us more about yourself. Each time we open up this word, you speak through it. Even as we have read of past pastors and theologians that have said your word is alive and it grabs hold of us. It runs after us. And we feel that each time we open your word. That you speak to us, you grab a hold of our hearts, you lay them bare, and you show us where we need more of you, more of your grace. And so, Lord, this morning, as we look at this important scene in the Gospels where your son takes a simple loaf of bread and a cup and sets up a continual remembrance and celebration of your grace. I pray, Lord, that that would influence us uh, so much. It would impact us, not just as we gather as a body to do this, but throughout our entire lives, that as we're thinking about your grace, that we would be changed people. And so, God, use your word in our lives this morning. Affect us by your grace. In your name. Amen. Well, the full moon would have been rising over Jerusalem at the last night of Jesus' earthly life begins. This feast of unleavened bread is drawing near for the city of Jerusalem. This day, however, holds a monumental significance. For this day is the Passover, one of the most sacred days of the Jewish year. A day of immense scale and enthusiastic devotion for massive crowds would have been descending upon Jerusalem at this time. So 
Jerusalem, full of commotion, full of commercial activity, festive preparations, would have had everyone busy that day. Many of the pilgrims to Jerusalem were merchants that were primarily there to sell their wares. And the hot item of the week was a male lamb, a lamb to be sacrificed. But despite all the commotion that would have been happening in the town that day, look at how Luke zeroes in on what's happening behind closed doors. He draws our attention to a secret plot to kill Jesus. Look again at verse 2. Chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. After years of arguing with Jesus, conspiring against him, the chief priests and scribes get their opportunity to succeed, or so they think. But really, I mean, how could it go wrong? The conspirator they are partnering with is one of Jesus' own. It's from the inside, Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' own 12 disciples, even more as Luke records, Darker powers are at work as Satan, verse 3, enters Judas at this opportune time. So behind the chief priest, behind the scribes, behind Judas looms a sinister force. Verses 4 through 6, the plot thickens as Judas confers with the chief priests and officers as, how, as to how he might betray Christ. And the decision to lay cash on the table is made. Consequently, the deal is done. The plot is set, or at least it seems to be that way. But notice that Luke shifts our attention away from this undercover plot back to what everyone else is doing in Jerusalem. They're preparing for the Passover. So, verse 8, so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover. We begin to see that there is another plan that has already been set in motion, a, a counterplot that is keeping pace step by step with Satan. Luke tells the story here in verses 7 through 13 in such a way that it shows us as his readers that there is a greater player in this drama. In fact, the irony in most of the events surrounding Jesus' arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion is that those who appear to be in control in fact, are not really in control of what's happening. You see, Luke shows us that everything taking place happens because Jesus allows it to take place. The sovereign hand of God is unmistakable in these verses. Look again at verses 10 through 13. He said to them, Behold, when you enter a city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. And Jesus knows what's going to take place. He knows what... Peter and John are going to come across. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he's going to show you a large upper room, furnished, prepare it there. Just as he had told them, verse 13 tells us, they went and found it, just as he had told them. See, divine direction and provision are at work here. What Jesus says can be trusted because it happens, just as he said it would. Jesus is directing all the activity of this day. He's knowing each detail, knowing that it will all fall into place. And he does so fully knowing what lays ahead of him. Fully, fully knowing of his impending death. Yet he's seemingly calm in this scenario. 
The mood of this passage continues into the upper rune seen in verses 14 through 21. We notice that Jesus is not at all rattled by what is coming. And so we see him reclining at table. Luke has already recorded in his gospel six other meal scenes. And these are events that we start to understand are the context for much of Jesus' teaching. But this meal is going to be a little bit different. The teaching that happens here is going to be a little bit more significant for his followers. Oh yes, the day of Passover and the Passover meal was significant for all Jews, but here it's going to explode with significance for all mankind. So walking into the room, our eyes would immediately notice the centerpiece on the table that hour. In the centerpiece of the table was a lamb, but no ordinary lamb. This was a lamb that had been roasted as usual for supper, but this lamb came with a story. Came with a story of sacrifice, a story of deliverance, a story of grace. This lamb was the centerpiece so that they would never forget. So that they would never forget their redemption from slavery in Egypt. They were due to do this in remembrance of their deliverance from the hands of Pharaoh. In fact, it's recorded for us in Exodus 12. So if you turn there with me quickly. Here in Exodus 12, we read of the tenth and final plague sent from God on the Egyptians as judgment for not letting his people go. Exodus 12 and verse 3, we read, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb... According to their father's house, houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, and then, then he and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs, at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. As we continue to read, we see in verse uh, verse 11, And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I... And the Lord, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day, verse 14, shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast for the Lord throughout your generations. As a statue forever, you shall keep it as a feast. And then notice in verse 28, the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. You see here, this Passover meal would be celebrated as a, a memorial, Moses tells us. A memorial from generation to generation. A feast of unleavened bread. And so each time it was celebrated, after this instance in Exodus 12, it became a story that was told from generation to generation generation a family story and so what's happening back in luke 22 is exactly that 
the story is being told. The day would have begun just like every other Passover day throughout the course of the history of Israel. Theologians explain that on the morning of the Passover, a massive assembly of priests, 24 divisions instead of the customary single division, would have arrived at the temple early that morning. Their first duty was to burn all of the leaven that had been ceremonially collected by candlelight the preceding night. By noon, all of their work would cease. At mid-afternoon, 3 p.m., the ritual slaughtering would begin. This would be completed in three huge shifts. When the first group entered and the temple court was filled, the gates of the court were closed. A priest shofar played a sustained blast and the sacrifices would begin. The pilgrims would individually approach two long rows of priests holding basins made of silver and gold. Each Israelite would slaughter his own offering and the priest would catch the blood on the basins and then toss it at the base of the altar. The slain lamb and its skin would then be draped over their shoulders as the pilgrims left the temple. After returning home or to a room reserved for this special occasion, the lamb would then be roasted on a pomegranate spit. All those there for the meal would be dressed in festive white and reclined at tables with a leader at the head. The celebrants reclined while they ate because they were no longer slaves. It was the host's duty to interpret each of the foods on the table as it related to the deliverance from Egypt. And so it was the host's duty to tell the story. The bitter herbs recalled their bitter slavery. The stewed fruit by its color and consistency recalling the misery of making bricks for Pharaoh. The roasted lamb brought remembrance of the lamb's blood applied to the doorpost. Their eating of the lamb within their house and the death angels passing over them is destroyed as it destroyed the firstborn of Egypt. And so we see all of this would have flooded the minds of those present with Jesus that evening as they walked into the room. Uh, they had done this over and over again, year after year. And so as they come to this Last Supper with Jesus, it's building, building upon a rich, full religious and social context of the day in this great Passover meal. Fully knowing that he would reveal the most wonderful truths ever taught in doing, and in doing so transform this meal, Jesus says he earnestly desires to eat this Passover with his disciples. But not just because of the significance of it, that it had for the Jews, but the significance it would soon have for everyone. And so the first truth that we see here in this passage is that this meal is a picture of future grace a future grace in the victory of christ at the consummation of his kingdom he says in verse 16 for i tell you i will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of god again while his impending suffering is undoubtedly on his mind the author of hebrews reminds us that it's for the joy that was set before him the joy of his redeemed sitting with him at table in the consummated kingdom that jesus endures the suffering of the quickly approaching cross and so it was the anticipation of another day, another meal, this messianic banquet at the end of history that sustains Christ in this hour. The repetition of the phrase, until the kingdom of God at the end of verse 18, is further proof of what is dominating Christ's mind in this moment. You see, as Christ takes of the bread and drinks of the cup and 
eats the lamb, he's reminded and he's looking forward to the promise of a final future supper, a supper of which John writes in Revelation chapter 19. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, John writes, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So it's that final supper that Christ longs to celebrate with his church at the completion of the promise. But until then, the Passover will be the last supper Christ engages in. See, Jesus has in mind here the fulfillment of his kingdom and the consummation of all things. It is the future grace that sustains him in his present hour. And it is the future grace that we anticipate as we take a meal, take the Lord's Supper, which we will do this morning. You see, for us, this Lord's Supper is not only filled with sobriety. Yes, we come to the table thoughtfully and seriously, but it's not primarily a solemn occasion. It is a joy-filled anticipation. The Apostle Paul then writes to the church in Corinth that as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Again, reminding us of the future grace. Paul understood that what sustained Christ in his hour is the same hope that sustains us in our day. The future grace at the consummation of his kingdom. So Christ, sustained by that, inaugurates this meal by taking a simple cup. Maybe something looking like this. And he gives thanks for it and asks his disciples to drink from it as well. Revealing yet another truth. That there is present grace in our union with him and with his body. Unlike the other gospel writers, Luke here mentions an additional cup. I don't know if you noticed that as we're reading it this morning. In verse 17, he mentions an additional cup. He had took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. Before the traditional institution of the Lord's Supper, he provides another cup. According to the cedar or the set order of service followed by the Jews in relation to the Passover meal, this first cup was to be taken immediately after the opening prayers. But unlike tradition in which participants were directed to drink from their own cups, Jesus here distributes a single cup among the disciples, thereby emphasizing the communal aspect of this meal. Now, of course, most of us today think that's just gross. Right? To drink after each other. Because we don't like the idea of drinking after strangers, do we? But that's exactly the point that Jesus is making here. You're not drinking after strangers. You're drinking after your own flesh, your own family. The point Christ makes is pivotal to the disciples' understanding and even to our understanding of this meal. Being at a table of fellowship with one another not only portrays our communion with him, but also with each other. This is a family meal that Christ and his disciples are about to partake in. It's not something to participate in individually, 
but corporately as the body of Christ. Just as we are corporately one in him, we are one together. You see, from the outset, Jesus stresses a radical mutual participatory nature of this supper. One commentator notes there is a deep eternal oneness portrayed here. A oneness that comes by virtue of our being one in him, but also being one together. And so, church, this is what we proclaim unto the future day, that we proclaim the present grace of our union with Christ, but also with one another, the church. The point is further emphasized as Christ picks up uh, in verse 19 a single loaf of bread sitting in the middle of the table, and he breaks it and says, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he passes the bread around the table. These words would have completely changed the meaning of the primary element of the Passover meal, this bread, along with the lamb. See, the bread had been equated with the bread of affliction, mentioned in Deuteronomy 16, because it reminded the Jews of their persecution in Egypt. But now, as Christ picks up the bread... He gives it a greater significance. It now represents Jesus' body and the affliction he would endure on the the cross. You see, his statement here is packed with immense meaning. Unfortunately, some churches have twisted the meaning, saying that this is literally Christ's body, Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. But as one commentator notes, the Jews with their prophetic legacy of parabolic acts and language, their customary symbolic expressions, they understood that Christ was speaking figuratively here. Just as when he said, the field is the world, or I am the door, to his hearers who saw him sitting there in his body holding a piece of bread, when he said, this is my body, it couldn't mean anything more than this is a symbol of my body. And so it's in this moment In the breaking of the bread that the Jews' meal becomes Jesus' meal. The bread he holds in his hands, breaks and passes it on to his disciples, symbolizing what would soon take place just a few short hours from this point, when his body would be broken and offered on behalf of their sins and our sins. And he says, my body, which is given for you. As the disciples would have each taken the loaf of bread, and individually torn off a piece from that bread, the symbolism and weight of Christ's words were meant to deeply affect their souls. This body was broken for me, so that I might be unified with him. The betrayal, the suffering, the piercing of his side, the crown of thorns on his brow, all for us. He would suffer once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, Peter states. Why? So that he might bring us to God. This is the present grace that we experience in our union with him. Now in Christ, we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But we also experience the present grace in our union with his body, the church. You see, what's most often misunderstood or missed in our understanding of the bread, is the oneness of the bread. We have individualized it once again in small little wafers. 
But the truth that Paul reminds of the church in, in Corinthians chapter 10, he says, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. You see, we can't miss the symbolism, the significance of that. The table that we fellowship around as a church is by its very nature communal. It's a family meal. So the bread that we take today should call to memory both the broken body of Christ on our behalf, but also the wonderful truth that we are united as one in his body, the church. When we see a loaf of bread, we are understanding that we are all one body. When it's broken for us, we see that we all participate together in union with Christ. And so at this time, we're actually going to pause and we're going to fellowship together through the breaking of the bread, through this Lord's Supper, by taking the bread. In just a moment, I'm going to begin pl- playing. and I'm going to ask you to come forward. And we've taken a loaf. And we've broken up the bread. I'm going to ask you to take just the bread this morning. But as you do, to silently reflect on what that means. Again, the significance would have fell Uh, hard on these disciples of what was about to take place and it should fall hard on us as we pick up the, the piece of bread understanding not only that this was christ a symbol of christ's broken body for me but also this is our oneness together as his body so with if you just close your eyes for a moment and reflect on your own hearts I'm going to begin to play and then ask that if you can, come up and grab a piece of bread and then go back to your seats and we're going to continue on with the Lord's Supper and and looking at this passage. So just take a moment now reflecting on your own heart. And when he took the bread and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of me. Father, this morning we are participating in this bread in remembrance of you. So we have asked that you would continue to affect us by your death. The shed shed blood for us, the broken body. So even as we, we taste this bread and we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ, know that we are one together in you, just as there was one loaf of bread. And we're reminded of this present grace that we have. Not only our union with you, most importantly our union with you, but also our union together as your family. In your name, amen. See, this remembrance is not simply a reminder of Christ, as one might find in a tombstone, But like the Passover meal, it is a representation that proclaims a saving significance of his sacrificial death in our place until he comes. Yes, there's no saving grace in these elements, but there is much sanctifying grace. One pastor notes, such recalling solidifies a community's identity by taking us back to our roots, to events that forge who we have now become. It gives us a chance as one body, excuse me, I still have some bread in my mouth, to reaffirm what God has done for us. And so we preach the gospel 
to ourselves in this meal. We preach it for our joy in Christ. Moving into verse 20, Christ here reveals another profound truth to his disciples at the conclusion of this meal, that of past grace, or what we will see as past grace. And what was coming for them, but for us it's past, and his death and blood shed for us. Substantial time would have passed between the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup. As Luke record, records, as like, and likewise the cup after they had eaten. So again, in the midst of this entire meal, all the different elements of the Passover meal, at some point Christ takes the bread and breaks the bread, and then he takes the cup, and he says this is the cup, as a new testament or new covenant in my blood. It's poured out for you. Once again, what we must remember is that all of this is happening through several courses of a meal. It's not a short meal that he and his disciples take place in. Unfortunately, the church has seemed to relegate it to just a couple minutes, some point during the, during the service. But there's great significance to this meal. There's great significance, and so we don't just tack it on. And we, even as a body, we don't just tack it on weekly at the end of our gatherings. No, it is something that's significant to us. Again, it proclaims our oneness in Christ, oneness to Him, and oneness together. And we reaffirm our faith in that. John Calvin wrote many centuries ago, It is ordained to be frequently used among all Christians, speaking of the Lord's Supper, in order that they might frequently return in memory to Christ's passion, and by such remembrance to sustain and strengthen their faith, and urge themselves to sing thanksgiving to God and proclaim His goodness, finally by it to nourish mutual love, and among themselves give witness to this love and discern its bond in the unity of Christ. And so by fellowshiping together in this meal, we're making a loud public statement that's, that's even louder than uttering a creed together. We're partaking together. By partaking together, we are recognizing and declaring that our very sustenance and life comes from Christ. And so in the midst of this meal, Christ picks up the cup and states, again, this, is the, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And his words change everything once again in this meal. By calling the cup the new covenant in his blood, Jesus is intentionally contrasting his atoning work on the cross by the shedding of his blood with the old covenant's abundance of bloodshed time after time again. Exodus 24 explains some of that bloodshed. And if we were to turn there this morning, we would, we would read these words. All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do in, in Exodus 24.3. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. The next few verses paint this picture. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And then Moses takes the blood and throws it on the people. And said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Well, everything of significance was doused with blood. The altar, the people, the scroll, they're all dripped with blood. 
Definitely not a pretty sight. Some of you are even squirmish right now. But there was supreme symbolism in that. The old covenant was launched on a sea of blood to emphasize the seriousness of sin, but also to teach that the payment for sin is death. The weakness of the old covenant, though, was that it depended on man's keeping his pledge to obey the law. But they couldn't do that, not even for a day. But as we hear here in these pages, Christ does. And only he could fulfill that law. And that is the good news for us this morning. The glory of the new covenant in Christ's blood is that he has kept his promise. And this covenant is totally dependent on Christ. He does it all. Our salvation rests on the infinite ocean of his divine blood poured out for us. His blood surpasses the blood of the Passover lamb. And it establishes a new covenant. All that Jeremiah the prophet speaks of is now realized in Christ. Jesus' blood shed clears the way for the distribution of the blessings of the new covenant and opens a new era of God's blessing on his people. And that is what we remember. That is what we must never forget. The past grace of Christ's death and shed blood poured out for us. So when we take of the cup, we are proclaiming that the blood of lambs and goats was never sufficient to cover our sins. Only the blood of the Son of God, who is fully man, was enough. So we will participate in the cup together. This morning we're going to do this a little bit different. We're going to ask you to come up together as community groups. Uh, And your leader is going to lead you in prayer as you all take of the cup and just thank God for the blood that was shed for you. Uh, If you aren't part of a community group, you're a visitor with us this morning, either feel free to join one of the community groups, or I'll be waiting up here if you want to join me. We can do that. If one of your members can't come up here, just gather around them. And so let's do that now. Let's come up as community groups, uh, gathering all around here, each grab uh, a cup of the juice, and remember together, again, a significant portion of this meal is that we're doing this together as the body of Christ. So go ahead and come on up. So I know this is different for some of you to actually walk around during a sermon. Um, But what we see in this supper, and as we all were moving around, joining together, again, we're, we're seeing something visible. And we're seeing the body of Christ come together. Uh, We're taking the bread and the cup, again, something we can see with our eyes, we can taste, we touch. In seeing all of these things, we're preaching the gospel to ourselves. We're reminding ourselves of the future, present, and past grace of Christ. His grace on the cross, his grace now in the church, his grace in the resurrection, and that one day he will come again. We've acknowledged our union with Christ, his death, and his coming again in future, present, past grace. One author writes, The celebration of this meal links our present relationship with Christ with the past and future presence of Jesus. In one moment, the great events of salvation are chained together in solemn celebration. Eternity touches time, and we are beneficiaries of a rare moment of fellowship. There is no more fundamental reminder of God's grace. So as we've shared in these elements together, we have affirmed that our oneness 
is, be, is in Him. Our submission is to Him. And we're recalling how we came to receive such grace. And so let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank You for Your grace in Christ. And thank You for this meal that we were able to fellowship together with. What it, symbol, it symbolizes to us, what it calls to memory each time we participate together as your church in this meal. It recalls to us of your death for us in our place. The fact that we are now one in you and we have a continual fellowship with you and with your your children, our brothers and sisters, and that points us forward. And that we're going to do this one day with saints of every tongue and every nation. At that final supper as we sit face to face with you and we enjoy a marriage supper of the Lamb. So we look forward to that day. We rejoice even today that we live in the full reality of your grace to us. In your name.